From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What does Grand Junction get with the Bureau of Land Management moving west? CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg is on the story. Then, what Congressman Scott Tipton says to current and former BLM employees who oppose the move. Also, presidential candidate John Hickenlooper confirms he was courted to run for Senate by Chuck Schumer. He talked to me about my interest in running, and I told him I was 100% focused on the Democratic nomination for president. He's a remarkably persuasive man, but he did not persuade me. Also, wallpaper, carpet, chairs. A Colorado firm led a historic redecorating project of the control room for the Apollo 11 mission. How a sparkling new highway cracks open. And celebrating Colorado's soccer superstars, Pew and Haran. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Go West. That's what D.C.-based staffers at the Bureau of Land Management are hearing. Senator Cory Gardner announced Monday the BLM will move its headquarters to Grand Junction this fall. The vast majority of the agency's employees are already in the field, many in the West. Moving HQ to Colorado has bipartisan support, but there are critics. Coming up, I'll speak with Congressman Scott Tipton, who represents Western Colorado and who fought for this. First, CPR's Stina Sieg. She's in our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Hi, Stina. Hi, Ryan. Even though supporters were pushing for this move for years, uh, the announcement that the move will actually happen is a bit of a shock, I think. Oh, it was a giant shock. So yesterday I spoke with Robin Brown. She's the Grand Junction Economic Partnership Director. You know, and her light, her eyes literally lit up as she told me about how she felt that very moment she heard the BLM is coming to town. Um, I am, I'm probably embarrassed to say disbelief, <laughs> mostly because there's we recognize that while and I still stand by that we're the great, we're the best place for the BLM headquarters. There's so much at play and there's so many politics at work and you don't really know what the decision comes down to. Stina, remind us how this push to move west got started. So this has been uh, Cory Gardner's cause for years. You know, he and Representative Scott Tipton, who you're going to talk to later, is he, they proposed this move back when Obama was still president. And they argued that the agency would just be more effective, you know, working closer to the lands it oversees. And it would also give constituents more access to agency decision makers. And, you know, and as Gardner Tipton loved to say, you know, close to 99 percent of all BLM land is west of the Mississippi. OK, what are the finer points, the details here on the move? So that's still really hazy. A formal announcement is still expected from BLM today. But I just heard from a source who was at the Department of Interior meeting this morning that most of the BLM employees uh, will get out of D.C. They're moving out of that office. I'm told about 300 are going to various BLM state offices and about 30 are coming to Grand Junction. And that's going to include the, the director, the deputy director and staff. And right now there isn't a formal director. It's an acting director. OK, so there's something of a disbursement across the West, not just into Grand Junction, it sounds like. Uh, what was Grand Junction's pitch to be the headquarters? 
So it was two big things. You know, throughout this process, as BLM was talking with Grand Junction, the agencies have kept saying that what it cares about most is a low cost of housing, low cost of living for its employees. And Grand Junction was touting that, you know, how how inexpensive it is to buy a house here relatively. Uh, the other part of the pitch is that Grand Junction's location is right in the middle of all this public land. Mesa County is more than 70 percent BLM land. What does the city think it will gain from this? A lot. So I have not talked to anyone here who is not really excited. I mean, when you're in a city that's less than 60,000, a move like this has large ripple effects, even if it's only 30 people. Uh, Robin Brown, who we heard from earlier, she's with the Grand Junction Economic Partnership. And she says this move will increase the annual wage out here. It's really low. It's only 42,000. It's also going to put more kids in schools, get more uh, folks shopping. And those are only the direct impacts. Indirectly, though, I mean, everyone's talking about Grand Junction right now, which is the point and really exciting. So we're thrilled about that, too. You know, and she thinks that even that positive word of, word of mouth alone is going to boost the economy. There are critics. What are they saying about this, Tina? So I had a conversation today with the Public Lands Foundation. They're a nonprofit group. They're made up of mostly BLM employees, and they are strongly opposed. You know, they say the BLM already has most of its employees based in the West, and that the people who are in D.C., the BLM employees who are in the Beltway, that they need to be there, you know, to work with agencies and Congress, and that they need to stay connected with, with what's happening in the Capitol. They also say that the BLM manages public lands in many areas of the country. And if you have BLM offices here, you know, the headquarters here in Grand Junction, it's going to look like there is the appearance of favoritism. There is some congressional opposition. Oh, yeah. So Raul Grijalva, he is a Democrat from Arizona. He's often very outspoken, and he chairs the House Natural Resources Committee, which oversees public lands. And he says this move would allow the fossil fuel industry to get really close with BLM officials. You know, and there wouldn't be congressional oversight to kind of keep those two worlds at bay. Uh, he also points out that the Secretary of the Interior, David Bernhardt, he's a native of Rifle. That's just down the road. Uh, but it should be said that this move has been talked about for years, long before he ever got that post. Uh, but it also kind of puts that question of favoritism up in the air again. Uh, and Grijalva also thinks that not all the BLM employees who are slated to move are going to move. So maybe this will just be another way to gut staffing. What kind of say does Congress have about the move quickly? So this is a complicated question. I've not fully found out the answer yet, but I just spoke with a source in Congress that says right now, legally speaking, the BLM is free to do what it wants. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg joining us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Grand Junction's representative in Congress is Republican Scott Tipton. He's been working on the BLM move since 2016 and sponsored the Headquarters Relocation Act in the House. Tipton's on the phone with us from Washington. Hi, Congressman. Ryan, good to be with you. So according to the Public Lands Foundation, there will be 27 positions moving to Grand Junction. Is that your understanding? That is. uh, We'll have the official announcement that will be coming out of the Department of Interior later today. Uh, I think we can expect to see that number grow. Uh, We've heard numbers as high as 80 people may be relocated out to the Grand Junction uh, now head office. 80 people. Help us understand what kinds of jobs are moving. You know, uh, we're going to have the director who is going to be moving out and the support staff that's going to be there as well. Uh, Important for the West, and Grand Junction is the perfect location for this. 
uh, to make sure that they're actually out on the lands that they're actually administering. I was in a meeting with Secretary Bernhardt just last week. Uh, He had cited uh, one BLM employee who'd made the comment he'd never seen sagebrush before. Uh, When you're sitting in Washington, it's hard to find. So with 99% of the lands that the BLM administers out in the west, west of the Mississippi, uh, it's going to be important to be able to have that on-the-ground experience and uh, expertise, and uh, we've got a great location now to have that happen. Do you expect the BLM will hire in Grand Junction? Uh, You know, uh, if we have people that uh, will not move uh, to the west, uh, to the land that they administer, then uh, that'll certainly create some job openings, and uh, people are going to certainly be able to apply for those. So the Public Lands Foundation says there's no data or cost-benefit analysis to justify moving the BLM. It says nearly all of the BLM employees already in the West make land-use decisions. They are empowered that way. And this employee group believes that HQ should remain in D.C. to, quote, provide rapid and efficient support to the federal government and nonprofits as well. Why override the institutional knowledge at the BLM and move the headquarters? Uh, let's bring that institutional knowledge out, out, out to the lands that are actually being administered. And uh, we do have technology now. They aren't going to be cut off from Washington, D.C., uh, but we are going to have the lands that they are administering now have people on the ground uh, and be able to perhaps get quicker resolution and to be able to receive input from local communities at a faster rate. And yet you know the importance of being in Washington as a member of Congress. There's something to be said for, uh, for lack of a better term, boots on the ground in D.C. And uh, that will not be eliminated. Uh, The Department of Interior is not being relocated. Uh, These are going to be uh, be the Bureau of Land Management offices uh, that are going to be going out. And uh, we're still going to be able to have the same great communication, but we're going to have people that are going to have a better feel for the lands that they administer. The estimated cost to move the headquarters to Grand Junction is at least $4 million, and uh, we're still unclear if Congress has to authorize that. What's your understanding? Uh, That's actually within the budget that is being proposed by the Department of Interior. Uh, They put that uh, into the appropriations process and built that into their programming. Okay, so there is some opportunity for House Democrats, if they're not comfortable with this, to weigh in? Uh, Yeah, but, uh, you know, if we... Look at the lands that are being administered by the BLM. Uh, Why would you fight uh, moving it to the West and uh, make sure that we're getting those boots on the ground from the administrative level? They're going to be able to give a faster response, uh, going to be more attentive to the local concerns. The Department of Agriculture uh, also is being sort of decentralized. And skeptics say that this will result in a kind of brain drain at regulatory agencies and that with attrition, uh, there may be a shrinkage of these regulators. Is there any truth to that? Is this a means to an end around smaller government? Uh, You know, there's a lot of worry from some quarters about moving out of Washington, D.C. A lot of distance uh, between the West and Washington, D.C., with the technology that we have now to be able to communicate, uh, our ability to be able to get back and forth, these are, uh, I think, questions that uh, don't really valid, validate uh, their position. Uh, we can continue to make sure that we're doing a good job at uh, getting people on the ground uh, for what's actually being impacted at home. So I hear you saying that this is not about shrinking these agencies in any way or reducing their regulatory power. No, I think, uh, you know, in some areas... Uh, one of the complaints that we've had in uh, a variety of our areas in western Colorado where 
70% of the land on the western slope is either federal, state, or tribal lands. Has uh, been some of the delays that have happened because of the lack of people. Uh, bringing more people out, I think, is going to make it more responsive. And in some cases, uh, we can certainly warrant some increases in terms of uh, the numbers and uh, some decreases in others. All right. I want to shift gears uh, and ask you as a Republican about President Trump's recent tweets calling four Democratic members of Congress, women of color, uh, who've been critical of the administration, uh, telling them to go back to where they came from. Uh, All four are American citizens and three of the four were born in the U.S. Uh, The president later stated, if someone doesn't like our country, they should leave. Are these comments from the president appropriate? You know, um, the four members of Congress are all American citizens. Three of them were born here. One became a citizen. Uh, And we can disagree on the politics end of it, but uh, they represent their districts and they have a right to be able to speak and express their opinions. Do you then think that the president's tweet is inappropriate? Uh, You know, we've had the same group of people. uh, They accused uh, Nancy Pelosi of racism. And uh, I I don't see either Nancy Pelosi or the president as racist. There's a resolution in the House to condemn Trump's tweet as racist. How will you vote on it? Uh, You know, I haven't had an opportunity to read over the resolution yet. Uh, I think we've got some important issues uh, to be dealing with. Uh, When we're talking about public lands management, when we're talking about jobs, when we're talking about being able to protect water, uh, we're seeing a constant move now out of the leadership in the Democrat Party uh, to politicize everything uh, that's coming up. Uh, you know, I think that uh, people can make their comments on this, but uh, to be able to have Congress have this vote is something I'm going to have to look at the resolution and see what they say. Uh, do, do you not at the moment condemn Trump's tweet as racist? Uh, as I noted, uh, you, we've had uh, the same group of people were condemning Nancy Pelosi. Uh, but that's what aboutism. I'm, that's what aboutism. I'm asking I'm, what you think I'm of the saying, president's tweet. Yeah, I'm saying that I do not believe either Nancy Pelosi or the president are racists. Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it, Congressman. Great. Thank you. That's Representative Scott Tipton on the phone with us from Washington, D.C. He's been working for some time on a relocation of BLM headquarters to Grand Junction. You're probably going to hear everywhere that it's been 50 years since we put a man on the moon. The other thing you're going to hear is that famous radio transmission of Neil Armstrong, One Small Step, you know the one. But to start this next story, we're going to play something else. The communications from here on Earth just prior to... Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're a go for landing. Over. I do understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. Top alarm. 1201. 1201. Roger, 1201. Same type, we're go, flight. Okay, we're go. We're go. Same type, we're go. Flight side, right on. Real good, Roger. 2,000 feet. 2,000 feet. Into the ag. 47 degrees. Roger. How's our margin looking, Bob? It looks okay. We're about four and a half. Roger. Those commands came from Mission Control at what's now the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. It's probably one of the most famous rooms in history. And until recently, it just sort of sat there, unpreserved. People on tours could spin around in the chairs, carve their initials into the consoles. 
Well, it was a Colorado company's job to restore mission control, make it look like the day of the moon landing, down to the wallpaper and ashtrays. Jennifer Keyes led this project for Ayuda Companies. It's an environmental engineering firm in Denver. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks. And you kind of grasped at your heart as you heard that radio transmission. It's still emotional for you. I I still love hearing that. It still strikes a chord. And I think it does for a lot of Americans still. This was a years-long renovation timed to the 50th anniversary. What kind of shape was Mission Control in when you began? Well, unfortunately, it was very sad. Um, the first time I walked into the room, there was that sort of awe-inspiring feeling, of course, that you know there's this incredible history to that room. And then you start to look closer and you see buttons missing from consoles and yellow tape on the carpet where seams were coming apart or were unlevel and wallpaper peeling um, stains in different places. It just, it looked pretty sad. There's trash in places even, hidden in desk drawers and, and things of the like. This wasn't just a cleaning job, though. It was a detailed restoration, and I find the details fascinating. Tell me about the kinds of details you paid attention to as you made it look like the day of the moon landing. It was truly a, a ceiling-to-floor restoration. We went through painstaking research over the course of the entire project. We, of course, started with the research portion, um, but then continued to unravel things as we went through the process. And one of the things we started with was, of course, the ceiling tiles. Um, When we walked into the room, there were not a lot of original pieces that had been in the room at the time of the moon landing. And we were able to track down original ceiling tile in an old phone booth in the first floor in the lobby of the building. And we were able to take it and look at it. Unfortunately, those ceiling tiles aren't made anymore. Okay, I imagine that a lot of what was in that room is not manufactured anymore. Oddly enough, that's that's the case. And, and so we went through the detail of assessing what that pattern looked like. We could get pretty close. And then we actually had our contractor drill holes to mimic the pattern. And I know it sounds a little crazy uh, to drill holes in in a ceiling that probably most people wouldn't notice or uh-huh. is kind of far away. But uh, the the historical accuracy was of utmost concern for not only our, our historic preservation officer on site at NASA, but for those flight controllers that worked in that room. You did look at old film footage of the room. That's right. You also interviewed flight controllers. Uh, what was the experience of watching... The film, which I imagine at the time was focused on the people. It's not like the, you know, the camera operator would have thought to get an image of a coffee mug or a ceiling tile. <clears throat> right. And and so one of the things that was sort of a, a challenge is, you're right, they were, they were focused on the people in the room, what was going on. And the reality is that we would go frame by frame sometimes just to go back up and say, oh, okay, let's zoom in and see if we can figure this out and figure out what piece of paper 
were they looking at? Or huh. what does their coffee mug look like? Or what kind of cigarettes were they smoking at the time? Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned cigarettes because <laughs> it's not like in 1969 this room was pristine. NASA staffers smoked like chimneys indoors, yes. which is sort of what you did back then. So when you thought about the carpet and the wallpaper, did you think it should be yellowed and kind of gross, <laughs> not pristine? I, I think what we tried to do is match things as best as we possibly could. To that day. <clears throat> to that day. And um, one of those areas uh, was the carpet. And um, we were fortunate enough that we were able to uncover old historic carpet under the pneumatic tube station. So we all call them P-tubes. Um, and there are stories, of course, of people. It's much like at the bank where you have a little little canister that you send missives back and forth. And they would use that between rooms to communicate with one another. And under those P-tube stations, um, there was original carpet, which was fabulous. Oh. The The thing we didn't realize, I think, at the time when we were trying to match the color and the texture was that some of that carpet would have been impacted by nicotine. And it turns out that where the the actual P-tube station had rested on the carpet had probably protected it a little bit better than directly under the station. And we matched what was directly under the station. So what is in the room today is a bit yellowed and matches more of what the nicotine impact would have been. Okay, at the time. You, you wanted to reflect that. Yeah, we did, yeah. You also uh, were able to reanimate some of these consoles with new technology, the old technology being expensive and unreliable. And when the restoration was nearly complete, flight director and former fighter pilot Gene Krantz laid his eyes on mission control. Here he is on NPR in June. I walked into that room last Monday for the first time when it was fully operational, and it was uh, dynamite. Basically, I just, <laughs> I won't say literally wept, but it was, there was the emotional surge at that moment was incredible. Seems like you did a good job. The The environmental engineering firm that you work for, Iota Companies in Denver, which contracts with NASA, yes. is woman-owned. Um, but I think of how male-dominated mission control would have been in 1969, and I wonder if that contrast has occurred to you. Uh, the The detail wasn't lost on me to uh, walk in that room, but I think um, my background is in chemistry. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, our, our president, Sonia Youngberg, her background is, is in engineering, and it's not uncommon for us to be the only woman in the room. Still today. Still today. But while so much is focused on what happened in that room, there were hundreds of other people in other rooms, not only in that building, but other places that also contributed to the, the landing of a man on the moon. I think of the story told in Hidden Figures, for yes. instance. Yeah. Yes. And Jim Bridenstine, NASA's administrator, also talks now about being able to put not only the first woman, but also sustaining uh, people on the moon. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Jennifer Keyes is with the Denver company that led the restoration of Mission Control at what's now Johnson Space Center in Texas. Fifty years ago this month, it served as the earthly nerve center of the moon landing. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. This is CPR News. 
In this world of legal weed in Colorado, what happens to the people who have convictions for marijuana from pre-legalization? Once they call me back, I would tell them that I do have a misdemeanor marijuana conviction and if they're able to hire me. And all of them said no. We talk expungement, sealing, and lots of other fun legal vocab words on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR about life after legalization. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Lots of questions about that giant crack on U.S. 36 between Boulder and Denver. It started to get really bad Thursday. Eastbound lanes at the problem spot remain closed, but traffic is flowing in both directions, albeit more slowly because of a workaround. CDOT doesn't have a lot of answers as to the cause. It's early in their investigation. But civil engineer Christina Torres Mackey thinks better inspections might have caught this earlier. She's an assistant professor at CU Boulder. And Christina, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ryan. 36 is essentially a brand new road. I mean, an expansion opened in 2016. What would lead to such a serious crack in such a new roadway? So the problem, as you mentioned before, there it is pretty soon to derive conclusions and CDOT is still working on this. But it looks it's coming from a stability of the slope. So probably there may have been some problems with the soil. In that highway, there are different type of soils that may be, um, that may be very sensitive to water. Mm. Those are basically uh, expansive clays and collapsible soils. And my my feeling is that this problem may be coming from a collapsible soil that, because of the presence of water, it has just caused a big settlement, causing this big crack in the highway. CDOT says the road started to crack late last week, and the cracks got significantly worse as the roadway shifted, causing the part of the road to cave in and the retaining wall to fall apart. Can we call this a sinkhole? Is that essentially what uh, we're dealing with here? So basically, uh, if in within collapsible soils, the most common type are hydrocompactible soils. So basically, in presence of water, the small the smaller soil grains will dissolve, and that will create a big hole that will cause this big settlement. Okay. So. Again, I think it's not a problem of the structure itself, but of a big settlement in the foundation. I mean, the crack grew really fast. Is that unusual? It's not unusual for this type of problem caused by a slope failure. So basically, the soil itself has started failing and creating a big, big hole. And that is the reason why the crack in the highway move so so fast it is it is not common definitely and uh but this is caused by the problem on the soil not the structure itself that's right as you've said so what do you think could have been done differently i mentioned for instance inspections inspections of what the soil itself or what yeah probably the soil itself i i i would say because of the way this contract is being managed. This is a public-private partnership. So basically, the company that is in charge of managing the road was also in charge of the design and the construction. So 
I'm sure they they were very concerned about having a good design and a good construction, right? These type of contracts are usually used by the agencies to transfer the risk. So this was a way that CDOT used to transfer the risk of the construction and design to a private company. And I'm sure they were the first really interested in going a good design because that will impact their long-term revenues. So having that in mind, I would probably think that more a better analysis of the geotechnical characteristics of that those soils may have provide some important information. Okay, so looking at the quality of that soil and then what kind of structure, what needed to be built on top of it, or what changes might have uh, been made to the soil itself to make it more stable? Yeah, so probably the the problem has come probably because those soils that are very sensitive to water, somehow the water has accessed those layers of soils. So you, you could take to to measures you could even stabilize that soil so that it is not that susceptible to water or you could mm, prevent the water to access those layers so probably because of the last storms and the the configuration of the uh, water um, has changed and that has made that the water has accessed that layer of soil so there has been some change in the configuration of that area that has caused this problem. You you said that this is not common, and and I don't want to be alarmist by any means, but is this the kind of phenomenon that uh, a driver should be concerned about heading down a Colorado roadway in the future? I don't don't think so. I mean, these type of things, again, they are like... Fortunately, they don't happen very often, right? And it is true that in Colorado, we do have some problems with with our soils. We do have expansive clays. We do have these collapsible soils. But engineers are aware of this problem. So this is an unfortunate change or the, the configuration of the area. There used to be a lake in that area. So probably some changes in the way water was was um, in that area has made this impact. But I I would keep things, um, I don't want to alarm people. I no. I think these, these are common problems that we actually study at CU Boulder as a part of our engineering degree. So engineers, we are, we are trained to tackle with these problems. Thanks so much for being with us, Christina. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Christina Torres-Mackey, Assistant Professor of Civil Engineering at CU Boulder. We talked about the crack in US-36 between Denver and Boulder. Democratic presidential candidate John Hickenlooper has had a tough time fundraising. He's at the bottom of the pack in the last quarter, taking in just over a million dollars, and he spent more than he raised. These latest numbers come after a shakeup. He has a new campaign manager and communications director. So what's going to change? And would he be a stronger Senate candidate? Some of the questions I asked him as he campaigned in Iowa. Governor, you're spending a lot of time in Iowa. The caucus is there, of course, at the first major event of the 2020 primary season. But more immediate is the ongoing series of Democratic debates. 
You're in the next one, July 30th and 31st in Detroit. But after that, changes in how candidates qualify would appear to leave you on the outside looking in. Are you concerned that you'll be one of the candidates eliminated? And would that be the death knell? Well, we'll see. I remain confident. We obviously, for a variety of reasons, have different challenges. You know, those of us that weren't in the U.S. Senate or weren't able to uh, access national networks of fundraising. But I think that, you know, when I'm in Iowa and I describe that I'm the one person who's actually done what everyone else is talking about, that, you know, we got the near universal health care coverage, we got the methane regulations completed by getting environmentalists and oil and gas industry to work together, and all those things get traction. Do you feel that the campaign, you as a candidate, have connected? Yeah, I think when I get in front of people and have the time to describe the vision for America and what we've done in Colorado for climate change, but what I think the nation can do, people respond. Unfortunately, those are not arguments that translate well to a 15-second Facebook ad. Or, frankly, to the seconds that you have, uh, maybe minutes added together in a debate. How, How important is it to make a big splash in Detroit? Well, I think, again, there'll be 20 people on that debate. So It'll be hard to get a what they call a breakout moment, just because everyone's trying to do it. Now, I think we made good points in the last debate, and I think people came away understanding that I've got a record that differentiates me from everybody else. I was a, an entrepreneur, a small business person, and I took that approach to solving problems into the mayor's office of Denver and into the governor's office of Colorado, and we had extraordinarily successful results. That was my point in that last debate, to get that basic context embedded that people knew that I had this record. You know, in this debate, we're going to try and expand it a little bit and provide a more three-dimensionality. Yeah. What would you have done differently looking back at the first debate? I'm not sure there's too much I could have done. Uh, You know, it's hard to answer the questions they don't ask you. And Brian, you know this as well as, as anybody. I've made a point of trying not to ever. And I, and this, when I first ran for mayor and people told me you'll never win. Because I said, I'm not going to attack my opponents and use that attack to try and get in the newspaper, get on TV, to attract notoriety. After the election, we've all got to work together. And I want to make sure, especially in the primary, but but in any election, I want to make sure that we try to keep it at least as positive as possible. Chris, the breakout moment, or one of them from the first debate, was that uh, interaction between Kamala Harris and uh, Joe Biden. You're saying that's just not the kind of thing you'd engage in? No, absolutely not. When you take that track, you get a short-term victory, but there's a long-term cost. And our political system is already fragile enough without more candidates trying to find ways to take apart each other. Let's go back to Iowa. That's where you are. You're making it a a focal point, meeting with editorial boards, shucking corn, uh, even riding your bike across part of the state. Is your campaign over if you don't succeed there? Yeah, I think Iowa is a pretty balanced state, right? It's a lot like Colorado in its electorate. It's, you know, rough justice. It's one third Democrat, one third Republican, one third independent. And if in the end, the voters of Iowa think, well, you've got a great record and, you know, maybe you'd be a great president, but Ah, still, I'm going to vote for this other person. I, I can accept that. Where would you have to place in Iowa to continue? Well, I don't know. We'd have to see what I got there, but it certainly have to be in the top two or three. Top two or three. 
Uh, as we mentioned, you're working with a number of new people, including campaign manager Emmy Smith, uh, who, interestingly enough, has worked previously for you, as well as uh, another candidate in the field, Senator Michael Bennett, also of Colorado. There were reports that the changes came after members of your team suggested you start looking at an exit strategy from the race. Um, it sounds like you're, are you, are you guffawing at that idea? I'm just chuckling. I was not guffawing. Uh, okay, a chuckle. Oh, the right. difference is uh, on radio, you've got to make sure <laughs> the nuances are pointed out. You know, A, it's old news. This is several weeks ago. And B, it was more complicated than that. The bottom line is what I want to do is make sure that people hear what our message is. You, is it that you think that message wasn't getting out clearly enough? Absolutely. And I think that our ability to hold up the collaborative approach with which we address problems in Colorado is a valid national model. And but, I think the more I feel I like you've been saying that, that from the beginning. Well, but I've got to say it in different ways and in, in different formats. And, and you might, in the end, be right. The voters of Iowa might indeed say, ah, that's all well and good, but that's not what I want in a candidate at this moment in time. But if you're, and, and again, so I, how do you I, change the approach? How do you make it so that that connects? Uh, what changes about your platform or your spending or I don't know? Well, it's how much time we spend in Iowa, right? In, in June and May, I think we probably spent four or five days, maybe six days. I spent more, more time than that in the last couple of weeks. Maybe spend less time, less focus on fundraising. It sounds like spending perhaps less time in New Hampshire and South Carolina, where I know you've been on the ground. Um, what, what do you think? We'll still, we, we'll, we'll still spend some time in New Hampshire and South Carolina, but probably less. Probably less. You know that there has been talk in Democratic circles about the idea of you shifting from the presidential race to the 2020 Senate race in Colorado, uh, trying to unseat Republican Cory Gardner. Uh, a number of national writers have posited that you could help your state as well as the country by doing so. Would you call yourself, what, adamant about not entering that race? Well, I certainly appreciate the compliments, but I have to be 100 percent focused. And I mean 100 percent focused on this campaign to win the Democratic nomination for president. Otherwise, I won't have a prayer. Allow me to follow up on something you told us months ago. Um, this was our last conversation when you were in office as governor, you said that Senator Chuck Schumer had called you. And, you know, that presumably was about the Senate seat, although I think you were uncertain at the time. Did you call him back? Yeah, I thought, yeah, I did talk to Chuck Schumer and he talked to me about my interest in running. And I told him I was 100 percent focused on the Democratic nomination for president. All right. um, he's a remarkably persuasive man, but he did not persuade me. <laughs> one one last question before I let you go, Governor, and it, it's about running for president um, with as many candidates as are in the field. I don't want to cast doubt on your intentions and your desire to be president, but is part of the calculation that if you run for president, it's a game changer in terms of how you are perceived into the future. You'll always be a guy who ran for president. And that comes with a certain amount of clout. It might come with a certain amount of uh, extra earning power if you go to the private sector. Could we frankly discuss that aspect of the reality of running for the highest office in the land? Sure. And I can guarantee you that those kinds of self-interest have never been part of my consideration. It's 14 hours a day, 12 or 13 days out of every 14. I mean, it's about the hardest thing, I think, in terms of stamina, probably the hardest thing I've ever done. 
and I don't see it's going to make me any better or worse than I was before. I honestly looked at everyone else who was running or was considering running, and I felt I was the one person that, and maybe I'm wrong about it, but I was the one person who who got into politics. I never ran for student council. I never ran for class president. I got into politics because I wanted people to believe in government. And I wanted to bring together Republicans and Democrats and nonprofits and businesses and tackle those big challenges that somehow haven't been getting solved in Washington. And, you know, I don't think it makes me more uh, attractive as an executive. Some company wants to hire me or, you know, whatever I do, if we're going to go be a teacher. I'm doing this because I think I am different than everyone else who's running. And I think that difference, call it my voice, probably should be heard. Would a cabinet position or the vice presidency be a nice trade-off, though? Actually not. It would be a hard thing to say no. But there's an awful lot of other things out there that are equally attractive. Governor, thanks for your time. Talk to you later. Democratic presidential candidate and former Colorado governor John Hickenlooper speaking with me Monday from Iowa after a quarter of difficult fundraising. Colorado's World Cup soccer stars Lindsey Horan of Golden and Mallory Pugh of Highlands Ranch got a grand welcome home Monday night. Governor Jared Polis issued a proclamation at the Colorado Rapids game honoring the two for their role in the team's recent World Cup win. Those were the cheers in Lyon. Hugh is a fleet-footed forward and one of the squad's youngest members. She described the frenzied celebration since they've returned to the U.S., including a ticker tape parade in the Big Apple. I personally found the parade to be the best. Um, it was crazy because I honestly wasn't expecting anything like that. And just like we were in New York and there were millions and millions of people like screaming at us. And it was just cool to see like the impact that we had on so many fans and so many different people. Like that's what was like the coolest part for me. And then um, again, just to share it with our teammate, um, our team. And yeah, the parade was just so much fun. Hughes teammate Lindsay Horan is a ball handling wizard in the midfield. She played a key role in shutting down France and making a brilliant pass to a fellow player who scored to seal a tough win against England and send the U.S. to the World Cup final. Horan said the celebrations have been overwhelming in a good way. I think a little sleep deprived. Um, it's been a whirlwind these past three or four days. You know, we flew straight to New York, had the Good Morning America, the parade, flew over to L.A. for the ESPYs. It's kind of a nonstop. And I think we've been just trying to soak it all in and enjoy it and know that, you know, this past basically six, seven weeks that um, we were together, um, we now just get to fully enjoy and celebrate. And as a team and with our family and friends um, and then being back here in the States, it's it's insane seeing the fan base and the support we get. We, like we felt it there, but now we really, really feel feel it. So it's been insane. Haran agreed with Pew that that parade in New York was an emotional experience. I have never been a part of something like that. And being on the flow at that that time in the morning and over a million people there watching you, just coming to support you. I mean, absolutely insane. <laughs> Both Pew and Haran say the moment of victory at the World Cup, holding the trophy was beyond expectation. It's something that signified much more than a win on the field. It was crazy. Like, I never expected expected um, how it went down. And 
um, was just like such a hard journey and I know everyone's had a different journey and di different path to get there and um, it just it makes me realize like all the sacrifices that I've had to make and all the sacrifices my family's had to make and my friends have had to make it um, like that moment was like it's it was all worth it. Uh, super emotional I think for everyone you know each player had a different journey getting there um, and I think that's what makes it so sweet is everyone went through some kind of struggle and and hardship in this you know four-year uh, cycle and journey to this World Cup and to be able to lift that together knowing everyone's um, everyone's path to get there it's just it's so sweet and and very emotional. I don't know how many people were crying. I cried like five times on the field. So, and keep crying. So it's, it's emotional. Few said a major highlight of that journey was her goal in the team's first round. It was an emphatic 13-0 victory over Thailand. That was fun. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I didn't expect that either. And um, I think just the first game of a World Cup, your first game and like scoring a goal, it, it kind of ties the bow on it. One surprise Pew said was how the team was becoming a cultural phenomenon here at home as the tournament played out in France. Honestly, like I didn't have media um, whatsoever during that time because it, it was like solely focused on what we had to do. Um, so I think that's why like coming back to America and like seeing the impact that we had and like why the parade was like so special for me just to like see the impact that we had during that time. Um, I mean, it's amazing. And I think it's just going to, that's just the beginning of it. I think we're going to keep on having an impact and um, hopefully positively impacting um, not only little girls, but I mean, people all around the world. Ryan also scored at the Women's World Cup, a huge career highlight. Uh, it's amazing. I'm sure Mal felt the same, but scoring in a World Cup is the most incredible feeling um, in the world. You just want to run around the field as many times as you can. But uh, yeah, I was I was so happy, so excited. Wanted to cry out on the field too. Now the stakes were high for Team USA. They came in as number one in the world. And then just a few weeks before the start of the World Cup, members of the squad filed suit against their employer, U.S. Soccer. Pew was asked if that added to an already high-pressure quest. Honestly, we as a team kind of set that aside and um, our main focus was to win a World Cup and um, I think everyone kind of individually focused on what they needed to do in order to help the team do that so yeah we honestly didn't really talk about it until um, yeah we haven't really talked about it yet and because um, our focus was to win the World Cup and that's done. Haran said she and Pew who's a few years younger have grown closer over the last few weeks. Yeah, I think, especially in this World Cup, it's it's grown a lot. I think um, Mal and I kind of look at each other as, you know, sisters. Um, sometimes she's my younger sister, but sometimes I look at her and I'm like, she seems like the same age as me. Um, I think she's matured so much um, in this past two years and the way that she handled her, herself during this World Cup, the support she gave her teammates coming out and scoring in her first World Cup game. You know, we went on this journey together, and I think at any point when we had you know, difficult times through this World Cup, we kind of came to each other, and, and that support is, you know, it's so huge, especially, I mean, she's so young, but, but she was amazing for me, and, and hopefully I did the same for her. So what's next? Pew says now the players will go back to their pro teams, in her case, the Washington Spirit, for Haran, the Portland Thorns. Then the next national team push begins as the squad looks to repeat as gold medalists at next year's Summer Olympics in Tokyo.
for me, this past cycle has been such, like, I'm just so thankful to be a part of it because I've learned so much from the veteran players. And um, honestly, like, after winning this, it's like I've learned that it takes, it's going to be a whole nother level to achieve, like, what we need to achieve. And, um, yeah, it's, it's going to take the younger girls to step up, but I know they're fully capable of it. And um, we've learned a lot, and we're still going to continue to learn um, from the veterans and um, continue to hopefully inspire people and um, focus on the Olympics for next year. Haran said she was excited to celebrate with the home fans here in Colorado, and she expressed pride in this generation of U.S. soccer players. She says it's building on the legacy of the 1999 team that wowed the nation winning a World Cup on home soil. I mean, I think you see it all over the place. I think uh, obviously winning back-to-back World Cups is is something in itself, but what what we're doing outside of the game as well, and I think you know what we're fighting for and, and fighting for for women and, and equal pay and everything. I think it, it is such an incredible movement to be a part of, and you know the world is watching and the, everyone knows, and I think so many people are standing up for it and coming in and joining us, and I think it's just our team is more than just a soccer team right now, and I think it's so incredible to be a part of it. So fun to hear from them. U.S. women's soccer team players Lindsay Horan of Golden and Mallory Pugh of Highlands Ranch. They returned to Colorado Monday night to celebrate the team's fourth Women's World Cup championship. Governor Polis issued a proclamation in their honor at the Colorado Rapids game. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner. The show is at Colorado Matters. And we are CPR News on Facebook. This is Colorado Public Radio News.